I'm licensed psychotherapist Greg Woodhill. Welcome to a Brave New Man podcast. On this show, we speak with both experts and non-experts in our goal of exploring all the ways that men are already getting it right, acknowledging all the ways that we're getting it wrong, and most importantly, learning how we can fix what needs to be fixed in order to have healthier, happier relationships and lives. Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's podcast. You know, we've all heard the word trauma over and over again, but we may not fully understand the entire spectrum of what trauma is and how it can affect us. Big, life-threatening traumas, those are the type of traumas that we usually hear about. Events like a car accident, or being at war and seeing people killed right in front of you, or even a violent incident in our lives. We understand that these events can scar people for life because their brain and body are constantly hyper alert for that type of danger happening again for them. But one type of trauma that isn't as well understood by the masses is called relational trauma. This usually happens in our childhoods and these traumas can affect the way that we actually learn how to do relationship. So some examples of this are feeling neglected or abandoned by our parents or caregivers being ridiculed or embarrassed by our families over and over again, or even being overly enmeshed with a parent. These relational traumas sometimes teach us that it isn't safe to be intimate in relationships because deep down our brain is telling us that it isn't safe to do so. All of these types of traumas can lead us into patterns of behaviors and relationships that harm us, and they can even lead us to addiction. Today, our guest is Tim Stein, and Tim talks to us about what trauma is and all of the ways it can affect us. Now, a little bit about Tim. Tim is a marriage and family therapist who specializes in sobriety and recovery from sex addiction. He works with betrayed partners, and he also works with trauma resolution. Tim is a consistent presenter at national conferences, and he seeks to educate and empower individuals to make the changes necessary for their lives to be well-balanced and fulfilling. Tim is a co-founder of Willow Tree Counseling, which is an outpatient treatment center for sex addicts and the betrayed partners. Tim's book, Gifts of Recovery, Daily Meditations for Men and Women in Recovery from Sex Addiction, is available on Amazon. Let's get to talking about trauma with Tim. Hello, Tim Stein. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Let's talk about trauma, shall we? Everybody has heard the term somewhere between 100 and 100,000 times in their life, uh, unless they work with trauma, they've heard it even more. But I don't know that everybody has like a common working definition of exactly what that means. So can you give us your definition of what is trauma? You know, I I think a real simple definition of what is trauma uh, is that traumatic events or trauma are events that are beyond a person's control that impact us. It's often frightening. Uh, It often disconnects us from others, uh, disconnects us from a sense of safety or coping. But, you know, regardless of what the source of the trauma is, you know, they typically have three common elements to them. One, whatever the traumatic experience was, was unexpected. Uh, The person experiencing it was unprepared for it, and there was nothing the person could do to stop it from happening. Wow. So, you know, sometimes that is like huge, major, obvious trauma, like a car accident. Uh, And sometimes it's it's more subtle and relational, like just feeling uh, emotionally disconnected from your family. 
Okay, so what is an example of one of those bigger traumas that someone might go through that you were just explaining? You know, natural disasters. Uh, okay. You know, we I live up here in uh, Santa Rosa, California, and about a year and a half ago, we had the big fire, the Tubbs fire here. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the people, my friends, but my clients as well, certainly were, were resonating with that trauma. It, it, it impacted their functioning. Uh, it impacted, they were having flashbacks to it. They were having uh, emotional reactions to sights and sounds and places that reminded them of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it was, it was the unexpected, unprepared, couldn't stop it. And it, you know, for many of them, it, whether they lost their homes or not, it had a significant impact on their lives. I know it had an impact on my life and I had to, you know, nab one of my colleagues and say, Hey, Hey, hey help me, help me work through this. Cause it's just weighing on me a, a little bit more and, and I'm able to function, but I, I can tell I'm a little bit crunchy and off. Yeah. So, you know, uh, major uh, natural disasters, uh, obvious abuse, uh, you know, major accidents that happen from out of the blue, you know, sometimes death of somebody that's very close to us. I mean, all the, there there are some pretty significant major things out there that will create trauma. You know, we sure. see with veterans and their war experiences all the time. Yeah. And the reason that we've, we talk about trauma so often in our work as therapists, but also in the world, is the effect that it has on people. So it's not like someone goes through something and then we spend a y- years talking about that one incident they went through because it was scary in that moment. What you're saying is it has long-lasting effects. Is that right? Yeah. No. It, it, the piece about trauma is not that we experience the event. The piece about trauma is that we experience the event and then our reaction to it continues beyond where the event is truly there. The trauma experience or the trauma reactions we're talking about are really, you know, very normal reactions to abnormal events. Mm-hmm. And so we've had this abnormal event take place. And in our nervous system, where that abnormal event impacted us, our nervous system is saying, hey, I need to keep us safe from this happening to us again. Wow. And so the trauma reaction is actually an attempt of our, you know, unconscious nervous system to make sure that we stay safe if something like this happens again. And, you know, if if we're in an environment where we need that kind of, you know, constantly being on our on our toes, constantly being hypervigilant in order to survive, that's an effective tool. But when we move out of those situations and back into everyday life, those kind of reactions actually become more problematic you know sometimes I, I i've heard somebody talk about trauma reactions are really good coping tools and they're good for a situation but they're not good for a lifetime and so when trauma becomes part of your coping skills for your lifetime yeah that's when it becomes problematic and we go in and help people to manage that better not not because it wasn't effective and helpful and what they needed in the moment but because it's becoming problematic as time passes. Wow, Tim. So is it fair to say that trauma reactions, even those that last years or decades, is an intention of the nervous system to help the person? The brain is saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, something life-threatening or that was perceived as life-threatening happened, and I want to make sure you're ready in case it happens again, even though the person is no longer in that situation. Am I getting that right? Uh, exactly. 
Well, I've heard you say before that it isn't the event, the actual traumatic event that determines the level of trauma, but rather the individual's experience of that trauma and the meaning they make of it. That's so powerful to me. I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. It absolutely is the person's experience and not the event itself. Uh, We will see people who go through the identical situation and some people are overwhelmed by the the trauma, by the experience, and it, it's consistently uh, impacting them. Other people will have gone through the same uh, same experience, and it it seems to have very little impact on them. And often that has to do with not the event, but how did the person experience the event? Uh, you know, I might have gone through. You know, we'll stick with the fire uh, situation up here. I, I might have gone through the fires up here, and been with my family and been contained and had people around me to support me and let me know everything was okay and to nurture me and to sort of share that experience with me. My experience of that event and the trauma impact that it's going to have on me is going to be very different from somebody who woke up in the middle of the night with the police banging on their door, Mm. running out the front door with only the clothes on their back, and their house being lost and not really having family around or friends around to, to help them out and ended up by themselves alone in a shelter. The, the impact that that, that trauma is going to have on them because of the way they experienced it mm-hmm. is going to be significantly different than, say, my experience of going through it with family and friends and loved ones who are there to support me. And I wonder if that's true, what you're saying. What if there were two people who went through the exact same trauma as adults? However, because of their upbringing or because of the ways, the experiences they've had or the way they look at life, one person perceives something as this life-threatening, life-altering thing, whereas the other person has a different, a different resilience to them or actually just perceives the event differently, and therefore it's not as traumatic. Does that happen too? It does. It does. Let me, one of the areas, well, I'm not say one of the areas because I, I do a lot of trauma work. Yeah, but I I do uh, the the primary work that I do is in sex addiction, and I do trauma work because it's so uh, so much uh, integrated into doing addiction recovery work because addiction is often driven by the underlying trauma. Okay, and, and so consider the individual who, in their childhood, growing up in their family, felt like they never quite fit in. You know, mm. that emotional disconnect, the, mm. you know, I'm surrounded by people, but I feel alone. That was sort of like the, the their uh, relational trauma, not big overt trauma, but that was their relational trauma experience that they carried out of their, their formative years. Mm. Mm-hmm. And if you compare them to somebody who grew up in a family where, you know, there, there were, there were always challenges because, you know, parents, no matter how much we love our kids, we're going to fall short sometimes but Mm. you know generally emotionally present available the child didn't feel like they were alone amongst people they felt very connected to the people around them you take these two men and they're both married and both of their wives are planning a weekend trip with their girlfriends Mm. and so the wife and the girlfriends head out for the weekend for their fun the guy who grew up feeling uh, emotionally isolated is going to have probably more likely to have a deep abandonment trauma wound kick up Mm. and feel, even though cognitively they know everything's fine, my wife loves me, our relationship is solid, she's just going out to have a fun weekend with some friends, Mm. and she's coming home. 
but there's going to be this deep abandonment issue that very well may kick up for him where the other guy who didn't have that type of experience growing up isn't going to have that same abandonment feeling mm-hmm. you know and, and i see this with my clients the people with those uh, with those abandonment wounds are more likely to relapse when their partners leave than the people that don't have them because their brain is telling them that somehow their survival or their well-being is in jeopardy just like it was many decades ago Right, and it and it and it doesn't have to cognitively make any sense. Of course, sure. things we have to hold on to. You know, it, it, I know my wife is going back. I know that everything's gonna be fine, but yet I'm feeling this deep abandonment wound all the same. And, and it's also that the brain can't really tell the difference between what's happening outside of the brain and what's happening inside the brain. <laughs> sure. So you know, my wife is going, and she's coming back. We're gonna have a great time. Okay, but inside my brain, it's. I am being left and abandoned and I'm going to be all alone all over again. And, 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 you know, on a trauma level, we really can't tell the difference between those two because my brain, my brain doesn't know the difference between what's happening outside the brain and what's happening inside the brain. When, I, when I've worked with clients on this topic, Tim, on their own unresolved issues, their traumas, I actually will say to them at times, what is that feeling saying to you? And the less logical in this moment, the better. And what I mean by that is you're having this big overwhelming reaction and a lot of time our adult brain wants to come up with uh, the logistics or to minimize what's being said rather than checking in with what that feeling in the body is telling them. And some of those things you just mentioned a moment ago, I'll be abandoned. Some of the times it's I'll die. I'll be left all alone. I won't be loved ever again because that's what the that one part of the brain is telling the body that my survival is actually at stake here and you use the term relational trauma can you give us some examples of that uh you you said some neglect or if there was any sort of abandonment what are what are other examples of that yeah relational trauma shows up in our relationship and our emotional experiences with uh usually our caregivers growing up but doesn't have to be exclusively them okay and relational trauma shows up to to oversimplify it relational trauma can show up in one of two ways either other people are enmeshing with me. On some level, unconsciously, I have taken on responsibility for their emotional well-being. Wow. So this might be the parent who, or, or caregiver who's constantly having a, a difficulty, and I, as the child, am stepping up to be like the parent of the family. You know, I'm parenting my younger sibling because my parents are just unable and unavailable to do that. And that qualifies um, as trauma, you're saying? Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Well, be, be, because again, if you think about it, trauma is a coping skill for the for the immediate moment. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel responsible to take care of my sibling and make sure my sibling is okay, and that responsibility is on my shoulders. And if and, and if I fall short, my sibling is going to suffer. So it's really important that I take care of them. Oh, Perfectly, yeah. totally loving response that makes complete sense in that moment. If now, as I move through life as I'm carrying that trauma, now if I'm developing almost a compulsive, but sort of a, a knee-jerk reaction of, I need to take care of other people. Mm-hmm. I need to make sure that everybody else is okay. I need to make sure that their needs are good enough. And if I don't do that, somehow I feel like I'm not good enough. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and now I've created this, this relational pattern that is really based on this trauma I experienced that worked in the moment, but that coping skill of making sure that other people are taken care of, even 
at my own expense to some extent Mm -hmm. is no longer an appropriate coping skill in my life. And it actually starts to create other difficulties and challenges because if I'm not taking care of myself, you know, eventually I'm going to get resentful. I'm going to get irritable. I'm going to feel like I, I don't have my, I don't have a right to have my needs met. So then rather than asking for those things, I start manipulating people and it just, Mm -hmm. It just gets crazy. That's right, because the brain doesn't realize it's not in that situation anymore. Uh, exactly. And so the same would be true for, as you mentioned earlier, neglect of a child or abandonment, whether perceived or real, or yeah. a critical parent, yes, somebody who is always nitpicking or always telling or, or overtly telling the child something was wrong with them, that to them, their brain developed in such a way that their survival of being loved and accepted was at stake. So that's trauma. Yes, that is trauma, because the experience I had growing up has impacted me. And my coping skill was, oh, I need to take care of myself because I can't really rely on and trust my caregiver to be there for me. Mm. So as I grow up in life, my relational pattern is probably going to be something to the effect of, I don't really let myself connect to other people. I don't let myself depend on other people. I don't let other people really take on that much significant importance to me because I, on an unconscious level, expect them to fall short, to not be there, to really not be a part of my life the way that that would be healthy. Yeah. And so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna open myself up and, and allow that vulnerability to, to, to take place. Wow. And it was a coping mechanism that served me growing up, mm-hmm. but now later on in my life it's just creating more problems. It's and- it would have to infiltrate all of your adult relationships unless that trauma gets worked on or healed in some way. Exactly. And, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. And one of the things that she talks about is how vulnerability is such an important aspect of life. It's what allows us to experience happiness. Yeah. And even though vulnerability brings along with it the risk of pain, mm-hmm. without it, we seem to shut ourselves off from love and happiness. How do you describe vulnerability, Tim? I think about vulnerability as I'm allowing myself to be known (laughs) by another person deeply and and completely, and I'm open to who they are and the reality of who that other person is. Wow. If I grow up with relational trauma, and and my relational trauma takes me to sort of like the the default settings that we're we're, we're sort of oversimplifying with, of I'm going to take care of other people at the expense of myself. Or I'm not going to let other people in because I don't trust them. The I'm not letting other people in because I don't trust them. Obviously, I'm not allowing myself to be vulnerable with them. Yeah. But if I'm taking care of other people at the expense of myself, I'm so focused on their needs, but I'm not really letting them know who I am mm. because my needs are no longer important. And in either of those cases, the relational trauma I experienced has impacted me and I'll, I'll talk about it from my, my gender perspective. Mm-hmm. As a young man, it has impacted me to make it unsafe to be vulnerable, which really makes it significantly difficult to be in a healthy, happy, joyous, balanced, equal relationship sure. with a partner. Yeah, and, and we already have so many poor role models for how to be a man to start with. Mm-hmm. You know, Hollywood gives us the, the playboy and the, the businessman and the, the outlaw and the rebel. And none of those are really quality role models on how to be a man. 
And yet that's what, what is given to us on a daily basis. And then you combine these unfortunate role models mm-hmm. with uh, a resistance to vulnerability because it doesn't feel safe. And we are just setting, you know, young men up, women, young women for that for that matter as well, but young men up to, to have all kinds of difficulty with connection and relationship mm-hmm. and, and what would really truly be satisfying to them in their life. Because the brain and the body are telling them that vulnerability, as you described it very well, isn't safe. Exactly. Wow. One of the places that I go to try to find what healthy masculinity might look like is I kind of I find myself going back to the Greeks. Mm. And one of the things I love about the Greeks is that they, when they talked about masculinity, they defined masculinity as courage in the face of danger. And, and so it wasn't success, it wasn't the most money, it wasn't the, the, the most sexually prowess individual, mm-hmm. it was being courageous in the face of danger. Wow. And, and when you take the word courage and you break it down into its parts, it comes from a word, I believe it is the Greek or the Latin word cur, which is actually a variation on vulnerability, to allow yourself to be known. And so when you go back to the Greeks and they talk about what is masculinity for a Greek male? It was to be known even when it's dangerous. Uh, for me, that is such a beautiful definition of masculinity oh and gosh. one that we are, are sorely lacking as, as being actively taught or passed on in our culture today. Wow. I just so wholeheartedly love and embrace what you were just describing there. And I have hope because... What you're describing of being able to be vulnerable, to be real and honest, even when it doesn't feel safe or even when the the mind is telling you it's not okay societally to do this, but rather to be courageous enough to actually allow it, I see bits of that creeping in all over the place especially in pop culture, in sports, in media, in podcasts, uh, in therapy. And that's one of the things I love about being a therapist who works with men and who works with addicts, as you just said, is being able to have that level of vulnerability between two men in the room and the person is getting a real world, real life lesson that, oh my gosh, not only am I still alive, but I wasn't rejected, I wasn't bullied, nobody beat the shit out of me or called me a pussy, I actually feel stronger and more masculine as a result of actually opening up my rib cage and letting someone else see my heart. I'm as pessimistic as I've been throughout the years, I'm actually starting to be hopeful in what I see and what I experience in the world, that it's moving in the direction because people are talking about it like you're talking about it right now. This is a lot of what I'm seeing. How, how is, are you experiencing this and what you see, Tim? You know, I, I see this in two, I guess, three ways. I mean, the, the first one is I see the men that I'm interacting with shifting and changing. You know, oh. there's, there's still some of the, 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 the guys' bravado the, the bad jokes that, that, mm-hmm. that get tossed around out there. But I also see men that I'm interacting with being more willing to sit down, especially one-on-one. You get us in a group and it's kind of a lost cause, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, but you, you get us like sure. one-on-one or, or, or in a small group. And suddenly the, the, the vulnerable conversations that people are willing to have radically change. And I, that just gives me such hope. I, I also see that shift 
happening in uh, like the next generation. I, I have a son who is a teenager right now, and his worldview, his perspective of relationship, and my daughter's for that matter, it, it's a very different worldview that's much more balanced. It's not so mm-hmm. much based on to be a man, you have to be strong and buff and be able to take the other guys out. It, it's much more of a softer, vulnerable willingness to be known, willingness to admit mistakes, mm-hmm. to, to learn from. I'm just, I have a lot of hope for the generation coming yeah. behind mine. Yeah. And then the last place that I see it is in, in the work I do with addicts. Mm-hmm. Because the experience I have is sobriety doesn't create this, but the recovery work, you know, finding balance, finding moderation uh, in all areas of your life. I, I see this softening, this willingness to be vulnerable, the willingness to overcome their fear and to engage with the world and the people around them in a different way yeah. that comes with recovery that that opens up to, to this amazing uh, masculinity that that just brings such gifts with it. And so when you when you're talking about that, that resonates for me because I, I experience it with my friends, I experience it with my son, and I experience it with the uh, the men that I work with who are are moving into recovery. So thank God for all of that. Yes, that makes me even more hopeful. And what, one of the things that I'm hearing you say, Tim, is that in recovery for addiction, under the best of circumstances, there is intimacy involved in that process. People need other people to heal. Addicts, therefore, need other addicts in order to heal. And in doing so, I know from what you've said and from what I've experienced and in so many of the clients that I've worked with, is that they have more intimacy because of their recovery and because of if they go to 12-step groups and they, they lean on each other, they need each other, they express that vulnerability. So they're growing. And in doing that, just from doing the work, some of that trauma gets healed relationally, just like it got created relationally. Now, I don't mean to say that that is the, the way to heal the trauma, but I see it happening, not through osmosis, but through actual work and connection with people, that it seeps into those parts of the brain and body that say, I'm not safe being who I am, and they're taught that, in fact, they are safe. And I think what you just said is, for me, one of the keys to this work around trauma it has to seep into the body and the brain yeah. because the way trauma works is I, when I have a trauma reaction, my cognitive brain goes offline so it doesn't slow things down mm-hmm. and my survival brain takes over. Yeah. Whether my survival brain is saying, go act out your addiction because that's how you're going to survive. Whether my survival brain is saying, don't let them in because they're going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. Or whether my survival brain is saying, fight, flight, or freeze because this is a life-threatening situation. Yeah, My survival brain is taking all that stuff over. So if all I do is have a conversation about what my trauma is and I have a cognitive understanding of it, when my trauma gets activated and my brain goes offline, all my cognitive understanding goes out the window. And so we have to find these windows that take us directly into the nervous system, into the deeper parts of the brain. And there, are, we, we've gotten much better at doing that. You know, we have a number of trauma techniques we use, uh, experiential techniques that, that work like post-induction therapy, EMDR, brain spotting is a new one, uh, trauma resource management. But the thing they all have in common is that rather than only talking about your trauma and understanding it cognitively, 
that all of these have windows into experiencing it and healing the nervous system so that on a very deep level, the trauma doesn't have the same impact and power and pull that it used to have. Mm. So that seeping into our brain, seeping into our nervous system is really one of the keys of healing trauma and, and, and moving away from it. Whether that trauma is relational or some of the bigger, more overt, big T trauma mm-hmm. that we might be carrying from our childhood. What's an example? What are some examples, I should ask, of big T traumas? We've talked a lot about relational trauma. And to be honest, Tim, I think that's really, really important that we're talking about it because those are the ones that go overlooked or just completely, oh. they're not understood that they exist at all. So uh, I'm listening and I'm getting this embodied understanding of what relational trauma is. What are some of those uppercase T traumas that you're describing like in different in different ways the they can be things that you would think of as being CPS reportable so okay. uh, physical abuse uh, sexual abuse mm. uh, severe overt emotional abuse would all fall under the big T trauma and I work in sex addiction primarily and so I will see a lot of men who have experienced sexual abuse as a child and that sexual abuse is directly impacting not only that that their sexual behavior is out of control, but the the way that their sexual behavior is expressed in their addiction. Mm. It's it's a way of attempting to resolve unconsciously yeah. the trauma wound that they carry from that big T overt trauma. You just use the word unconscious, and to me, that's one of the words that makes me more sad about any of this uh, than any other word because. As you said, the person is acting it out, whether that's in addiction or in their relational life or in their sexual life, that there's a part of this that is on replay, but the person has no idea. So it's like they're getting re-traumatized or they're suffering all over again with no way of knowing that they're doing that. They might say, my behavior is unhealthy, or they might say, my behavior is fine. But how does somebody know if they're suffering from trauma, like if someone's listening right now and they're wondering, uh, does this apply to me? How do they know? What is, is there any sort of internal checklist that somebody can ask themselves for, am I one of these people that Tim is describing? Yeah, well, some of the things that we show up that really get impacted by trauma are our relationships with others, our interactions with others, and how we respond to situations. So if I find myself being hypervigilant, hypervigilant about a situation, hypervigilant about other people and what their experience is, uh, hypervigilant about other people's emotional well-being, you know, that's going to probably have its roots back in trauma in my childhood. Mm-hmm. If I feel easily overwhelmed by other people, if I think that other people are better than me, mm-hmm. or I step one up on them and I feel like I'm consistently better than them, mm-hmm. that'll show up. When I have sort of like a compulsive need to do something and it doesn't really make sense with the situation then that oftentimes it's a trauma piece one of the one of the ways that i see this frequently again i will just preface that i work in sex addiction so you know my view of this is a little limited (laughs) okay but i i will see men who come in and they identify as heterosexual but their primary addictive behavior is acting out with other men sexually Okay, and they will try to figure out well what's going on. Am I am I gay and I'm just in denial? Am I bisexual? What's going on? And where they are on that sexuality continuum is a whole different conversation. Mm-hmm. But if they are acting out with other men sexually, and it's not really about I find them attractive, I am really drawn to them, 
I, I really love this masculine energy and it, and it just really feels like it fits with me mm-hmm. from a relationship perspective. That's like a whole sexual orientation attraction conversation. Mm. But I will see the men that walk in and they're like, yeah, I really don't care. It's just a penis for me to get a high from. Mm. That's really what I'm looking for. I'm just, I'm just looking for, for the hit. Mm-hmm. And when I hear that, what clicks in my mind is this is somebody who was most likely sexually abused as a child, whether they have a cognitive memory of that or not. And they are on an unconscious level attempting to resolve that trauma of having been molested and, and sexually abused. Mm. You know, I think about, there was a, it's not Modesto, but it's a little town in Central California, and I can't remember the name off the top of my head. But back in the 80s, they had a school bus that was uh, hijacked, and they drove the school bus with the kids and the driver into a big pit covered it with dirt and held the bus for ransom for the city to pay. And the good news is that the driver and the kids got out of the bus fine. They got opened the window, they crawled out, everybody was safe okay. and taken care of and they and they got the people. So good ending to that. Yeah. But the kids experienced significant trauma. They followed those kids and gave them mental health services, thank goodness, mm-hmm. you know, for like the next decade or so. But yeah. one of the common themes that they found in the artwork and then the play of those kids is they kept burying things again and again and again. And what their brain was doing was their brain was trying to make sense of this traumatic event Mm. of having been buried in a bus alive. And so our brain, when we go through a traumatic event, our brain wants to resolve it and make sense of it. And one of the ways our brain tries to make sense of it and resolve it is by recreating it or acting it out again hoping to get a different outcome yeah and so you know when when people are reenacting past events over and over again sort of whether it feels compulsive or whether it just feels like they have to do it that's oftentimes an experience of someone trying to make sense on a deep neurological level yeah of the trauma that they went through Mm, that's so touching to me and it's sad. It's also, it's scary. It's also hopeful that there are ways now for people to find their way out of it. And so some of the things I just heard you say, as far as people's own self-assessment, do I find myself repeating behavior that isn't helpful, but is in fact harmful to me, whether it's compulsive or addictive or not? Do I find myself in relational patterns that either don't make sense or that hurt me over and over again? Or do I have a mental and emotional reaction that really doesn't match what's happening out here in, in my life, but I'm having this, whether it's terror or rage or shame, attaching to things that don't really justify that, that those can all be markers for somebody to look inside and say, I think there may be trauma, covert or overt, that I need to go deal with. Do I have that right? Oh, absolutely. And I think the other thing that I'll say is the people around us, whether we appreciate their feedback or not, are often really helpful to us in this. I kind of live my life by the rule of three. When something (laughs) comes to me three times, it means I should probably pay attention. And so if I've got people in my life who are saying, you know, you're kind of angry about this stuff, or you know, you keep having a hard time when this situation comes up. When I have people around me who, who are pointing something out like that, and what they're basically saying is, your reaction 
is either significantly lower than this situation calls for, mm-hmm. or your reaction is significantly stronger yeah. than this situation calls for. Yeah. Yeah. And when I've got people around me who are giving me that feedback, <laughs> and you know, like one person giving me that feedback, that might just be them. When I get it three times, it's time for me to look at it at what is underneath that reaction. Yeah. And and oftentimes it's trauma. I want to finish off by asking you right now, if somebody is resonating with any of the traumatic responses or any of the actual traumas that you're describing, what's one step that they can take right now in the direction of healing? If any of this is resonating with someone out there, one thing that they can start to do is they can start to take a personal inventory, Hmm. sit down with some paper and just start writing about what are the things in your life that are confusing to you? What are the things in your life that are creating problems for you? What are the things in your life that other people are consistently commenting on? And just see if there's a theme that starts to emerge. And then if it's, you know, some minor trauma that's not having a huge impact on you, there's lots of really good self-help books out there about trauma. And if it's having more of a consistent impact in your life and in your relationships, Find somebody who's a therapist that specializes in trauma. And that's not all therapists. You know, therapists have all kinds of different specialties out there. Find a therapist who knows their trauma work, who's got specific specialized training in trauma work, and go dig into it with them. Hmm. Because you're worth it, and the impact it's having on your life and the life of people around you is very, very preventable. What a beautiful note to end on. Tim Stein, if people love what you're saying, they love what you do, they want more of you or anything that you produce, how do they find you, sir? Uh, there's several ways. One, you can look at my own website, which is timsteinmft.com. I am also a co-founder of Willow Tree Counseling in Santa Rosa. We're an outpatient sex addiction treatment program. And so you can find me at the willowtreesantarosa.com website as well. And lastly, if you, if you like some of the stuff that I'm talking about, uh, I have my book, Gifts of Recovery, yes. Daily Meditations for Men and Women in Recovery from Sex Addiction, which is available on Amazon. Mm. And it's a daily meditation book. And while it specifically is talking about sex addiction, one of the things I'm most proud about with these meditations is that I have interwoven various themes into them from a therapeutic perspective as well as just a 12-step recovery perspective. So there's a lot of stuff in here talking about trauma and how trauma impacts sex addiction, recovery, and what we can do to, to heal from that in general. Thanks so much for the work you do, man. And thank you so much for taking the time here to share your wisdom with us and uh, just keep doing what you're doing. Oh, my pleasure, Greg. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your show. You bet. Okay, so what now? First of all, let me just review a few of the things that Tim talked to us about. He told us that trauma responses are normal reactions to abnormal events. And I think that's such an important concept to sit with because what our nervous system is trying to do is trying to keep us safe from this type of scary, potentially life-threatening event ever happening again. The problem with that is that our brain and sometimes our body don't realize that the trauma that happened was a long time ago and we no longer need it to be hypervigilant in order to keep us safe. 
But because of the way that trauma works in the brain, it doesn't stop us from worrying that we're still in danger, whether that's relationally or that our life is actually in danger. So what Tim told us was that if we had relational trauma in our childhood, we may find ourselves acting out all of those same patterns as adults because if we are conditioned not to trust others, we cannot be open and vulnerable and trust people because our trauma is telling us that we're not safe to do so. On the other side of the spectrum is, if I believe that I need to take care of all other people's needs over my own, I also can't be vulnerable and trusting because I don't think that my needs are important. I believe the most important thing in trauma is to realize it's there and know that we need to take steps in order to heal it because otherwise we're on autopilot and it's just actually running the show. Remember that Tim said that the brain can't really tell the difference between what's happening outside of the brain and what's happening inside the brain. So that can be really tragic because we may be going through life thinking that all of these things are happening to us that are dangerous and crazy and where we're not safe. When in reality, it's only our trauma telling us that because that's what happened so long ago. So when I asked him, how do we know if we have trauma running any part of our lives? He said to give ourselves this self-test. Am I being hypervigilant about situations with other people and my own or their well-being that most likely has roots in trauma? Am I easily overwhelmed by other people? Do I go one up on people where I need to feel better than them? Or do I go one down where I put myself in a seat that is subservient and not enough to them? Do I have a compulsive need to do something that doesn't always fit the situation? Or have I developed an addiction where I'm constantly trying to get myself out of the feelings of what it's like to just be here and now? He also reminds us to ask ourselves, are my emotional reactions a mismatch for what's happening in front of me? That is so important. We can use other people to tell us, hey man, you're getting really angry about something that really wasn't that big of a deal. Or how come you're not upset because what happened really is a big deal. We can also just check in ourselves. We can use a litmus test of, when I look logically at what just happened and then I look at my emotional reaction, are they congruent? Or am I way higher or way lower than I even think I should be? If any of these things resonate with you, then it's possible that you have overt or relational trauma in your past, and it's probably a good idea to talk to somebody about it. Tim suggests taking a personal inventory. Sit down with some paper and write about the things in your life that are confusing or creating problems or things that other people are consistently commenting on and see if there's a theme in that list that starts to emerge. If you see that it's just a minor problem that might need you to just fix a few things here and there, he recommends getting some self-help books on trauma. There are many books on overt trauma and a lot of books on relational trauma out there. And reading about yourself in a book can be a great way to start moving toward your own healing. Now, if you determine that there's been a major trauma and that is really fueling what's upsetting you in your life today, Tim recommends finding a therapist who specializes in trauma, specifically somebody that you can go in and trust that the words you have to say are safe in that room and that that person can lead you toward healing the trauma so that it's no longer affecting or running your life in the same way. 
I always say, if you have a traumatic event that you've never talked to someone about, think about who would be a really safe person for you to talk to and go confide in them. Open up and allow that vulnerability that we talked about in this interview to connect with someone and experience the joy and the happiness and the intimacy that letting people know what's inside of you and what makes you tick helps to happen. Keep opening up, keep sharing, keep loving. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for listening to A Brave New Man Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to A Brave New Man on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And come follow us on Instagram at A Brave New Man Pod. That's A Brave New Man P-O-D for updates on the show and our daily words of wisdom. See you next time.